You're listening to Discriminology, the podcast that aims to dismantle discrimination one discussion at a time. Produced by Launchpad 516 Studios with your host Malik Silau, Steve Kramer, and Sydney Penn. Welcome back to another episode of Discriminology. I'm joined here today by Sydney Penn and Mr. Kramer, and this is Malik speaking. Today, we'll be discussing cultural competency as it relates to medicine. Cultural competency is, for some, a new buzzword that has become prevalent in many different institutions and professions. Cultural competency in medicine, however, is something that has emerged during a time where there wasn't such a heightened focus on diversity issues in the United States. What is cultural competency? What is structural competency? And why should doctors and MDs be focused on it? Does it really have an impact on healthcare outcomes? Helping us discuss this topic today is returning guest, Dr. Oni Blackstock. Uh, Steve, do you mind introducing our guest? Of course. Dr. Oni Blackstock is recognized as a thought leader and influencer in the areas of HIV and health equity. She is the founder and executive director of Health Justice, a consultancy that provides content expertise in the areas of HIV, sexual health, LGBTQ health, and racial equity to public health and healthcare organizations. She is a primary care HIV doctor and researcher who sees patients at Harlem Hospital. Dr. Blackstock recently served as Assistant Commissioner for the New York City Health Department's Bureau of HIV, where she led the city's response to the HIV epidemic. She holds degrees from Harvard College, Harvard Medical School, and Yale School of Medicine, and is passionate about achieving health equity, particularly for the most marginalized and disenfranchised communities. Welcome welcome back, Dr. Blackstock. Thank you, Mr. Kramer. Thank you, Malik and Sydney. Pleasure to be here. Did we miss anything in the intro? Um, I know you're pretty busy, so... uh... No, it's good. It's great. Cool. To kick this interview off, can you give our listeners a general idea of what cultural competency even is? Right. So cultural competency um, kind of evolved in, uh, I would say it's not so new, actually. I would say in the late 70s, this idea of cultural competency um, really emerged as a way to address what people were seeing in terms of racial um, and ethnic health inequities. Um, and basically the, the idea is that we know that, you know, our patients may be coming to us with different beliefs, different values, um, you know, different practices. And we want to make sure that as um, medical professionals or healthcare professionals that we are, you know, prepared to address whatever their unique needs are. Um, however, um, some of the challenges with cultural competency have been that uh, they, it has tended to have this like cookie cutter approach or um, sort of stereotype approach to grouping um, different groups of people by race, ethnicity. So it may say like, um, you know, when it comes to pain, like this group may, uh, may be more vocal about the pain they had. This group may minimize their pain, but it was in a way that um, really stereotyped and generalized um, the characteristics um, of groups. Um, And then there's actually been a shift over the years away from cultural competency to something called cultural humility. So this idea that we are 
like lifelong learners that we're never going to fully know, you know, all of the details um, of another individual's culture, but that we acknowledge that we are willing to, to continue to learn um, about um, various cultures and, um, and groups. But that also is limited because both cultural humility and cultural competency don't really address underlying um, what we call structural determinants um, of health. Um, and the structural forces, the policies, um, the power hierarchies that often lead to health and social inequities and poor health outcomes. So on that same topic from the paper, uh, one of the quotes that stuck out to me is that um, the stigma and cultural conflict in healthcare are sequelae of a plethora of financial, legal, governmental, and uniquely ethical decisions with are made about medicine that are politically based. Um, so the paper was more or less soliciting MDs to be politically involved to address some of those concerns that you were referencing. How is, is that something that's feasible? Yeah, I think the whole idea is behind um, that quote and this idea of structural competency, which is really ensuring that health professionals understand, again, these, the structural determinants of health, these structural factors, policies, um, systems of power and oppression that, that end up driving these inequities. And it just it's a recognition that that is an important sort of competency for health professionals um, to have in caring for patients. So if you have someone, you know, come into you who's an undocumented immigrant who, you know, doesn't have access to, you know, to health insurance because they're undocumented and they've come to you late, late, let's say with a cancer diagnosis that's really advanced, you're, you know, you're going to understand, um, or it's important for you to understand what are the different policies that um, exist um, and the different systems of power and privilege that have led that person to eventually come in to see you with this advanced stage of disease. And so one of the issues could be, you know, we have um, a healthcare system that's a for-profit, you know, that's for-profit. Um, we have, we do not have healthcare for all. We have many people who are uninsured, much less since the Affordable Care Act, but we still have many people who are uninsured. Um, healthcare is still largely unaffordable. Medical debt is still a huge issue. And so really it's important for us not to just understand like, um, you know, the, the situation that's sitting in front of us, but the entire context in which our patients um, exist and how that um, influences choices, um, health behaviors, options that people have for themselves. And specific to the short little vignette you provided for us, I guess I'm not following how an individual practitioner can have an impact on a situation like that. Sure, right. So for instance, like, so I'm part of an organization called um, New York Docs, and it's a group of of healthcare workers, not just physicians. And we do a lot of different like advocacy efforts and actions. So some of our work is around, for instance, people who are undocumented immigrants who were in detention and for instance, ensuring that um, they have um, access to, you know, COVID vaccinations and um, testing and appropriate healthcare when they need it. Um, and so, while that doesn't like necessarily link to the example that I gave you around the person who came in with advanced cancer diagnosis, it it speaks to really understanding like what are really the day-to-day -day experiences that could affect someone's health and well-being, whether they be in a detention center, um, and what are the policies that have led them to being in a detention center, and what are the policies, for instance, with that patient um, who, you know, why, why don't people who are undocumented um, have access to 
Medicaid and Medicare? Like what, what is behind that? And then what can we do as healthcare professionals to really begin to like ad to advocate for our patients um, so that we have impact, not just sort of within the walls of our clinic, but really in the, you know, outside in the day-to-day -day lives um, of our patients. So for instance, like we've had providers go to, um, oh, like for Rikers, for instance, Rikers Island, um, to the jail system there. Um, you know, there's been a lot, a lot going on there in the past year or two since the pandemic started, very um, unsafe, very concerning conditions there. But, you know, our presence can, you know, raise the alarm, um, raise attention to the, the type of healthcare, the poor healthcare that's happening. So that can be improved. And then we often see, you know, once people are released, we see many people in, in our clinics. And so having an understanding of what people are dealing with when they're incarcerated, um, what are the policies that are keeping people incarcerated, and then what we can do to support them when they're re-entering, um, these are all things that I think are like, you know, really critical for healthcare professionals to understand and be able to, to contribute to addressing. So it seems to me that um, when, when we're talking about the healthcare profession and access and things like this, that it's really part of the bigger discussion that's going on in the in the country today about critical race theory and about understanding how different structures have kept different groups out of the system and how they're they're really structured to do that. Is is that something that you guys in your profession talk about? Is it something that am I making a correct link here or is this something that's totally unique to the healthcare profession? Yeah, no, I think you, know, you raise you know, an excellent point. This is exactly what I'm saying. The, the reality is this is often not part of, of, of medical, at least I'll talk in terms of uh, medical education for physicians. I suspect this is also the case for, for nursing, for nurse practitioners, MPAs, you know, this idea of like having a structural analysis. So when we see, you know, whatever trends we're seeing within the communities that we're caring for, you know, it, are we interrogating, you know, what is causing, what is, what are the underlying causes for what we're seeing? What are the, you know, the, the policies, both past and present that have led to um, whatever inequities that we're witnessing and, you know, how is that manifesting in the patients that we're seeing? So, yes, yeah, so there's, I think increasingly in structural competency has kind of, is literally trying to call this out because often it's like, you know, we care for patients often in a vacuum and um, a lot of times, you know, there's been increasing attention around social determinants of health. So those factors um, that affect, you know, how we, you know, live, work, play, age. So like, our, you know, whether we have healthcare access, whether we we're employed, um, our access to jobs or schooling. Um, but there's not a lot of uh, emphasis on like why someone would have differential access to those things. Right. So when we think about like even just access to green space in communities, you know, for instance, if we're seeing high rates of obesity, you know, are, are, do people have an opportunity to have access to healthy foods or to green space to be able to exercise? And then when we start digging deeper, we're like we learn about, you know, redlining um, and how redlining and a series of different discriminatory policies and practices has led to like broad social disinvestment and economic disinvestment in you know black um, communities latino communities non-white communities um and how that then affects you know present day even though those were you know policies from you know the 1930s they still have ramifications today we still see in the same neighborhoods that were redlined just to say redlined that was um, just for the listeners um this was the federal um, housing authority 
um, in the 1930s uh, was uh, giving out loans sort of in response, I believe, to the Great the Great Depression, um, was giving out loans, but they only gave out loans to areas that were sort of loan worthy or mortgage worthy. And those that were not mortgage worthy or were high risk, they lined with um, with a red pencil or red, red ink. Um, and those were primarily like black, Latino, Asian neighborhoods. Um, and so those same neighborhoods today, we still see, if you look at maps of cities, you can still see the same areas um, in many cases, um, still have the highest rates of different medical conditions, still high rates of poverty. And so it's really understanding how, you know, all of these different policies currently impact our patients' abilities to take care of themselves and communities' abilities to stay to stay safe. Um, so, Dr. Oni, from a, from a healthcare standpoint specifically, um, can you just, for our listeners, can you kind of explain, like in looking at structural competency in medicine or in healthcare as sort of an umbrella, um, can you kind of explain the difference between like a doctor or a practitioner or a nurse or something uh, ha having competency in the individual situations of a certain patient or of, of a patient, you know, maybe that there's a language barrier or a cultural difference versus looking at competence, competency in, in medicine as from a societal standpoint, can you explain kind of the difference? Okay, can you say that one more time? I just want to make sure I understand the question. Okay, so so explaining the difference or elaborating more on the differences between having competency in the individual situation of oh, a certain yes. patient that you that right. a doctor may have versus looking at social competency as an umbrella from a societal standpoint and impact with outside factors. In right, right. So for instance, like, you know, if you have a patient um, who is coming in, let's say there's you prescribe them a medication and the medication needs to be taken with uh, food, right? But um, you have not, you know, delved into your patient's access to, you know, what access they have to food that you may not know that they're on SNAP or they're getting they're getting food stamps. You don't know how much how much they're getting, and so a lot of times if we don't have awareness of you know, what are the, the safety net supports? What are the programs available? We may just, you know, see our patient as someone who's not adherent to their medication and they're just not taking their medication because they don't, you know, they're quote unquote a bad patient. But if we begin to ask and understand, so that patient may say, well, you know, I, I haven't gotten my food stamps yet, so I wasn't able to get food to take with my medication. Then we begin to have an understanding of like, what are the factors outside of our patient that then affects their ability to be able um, to take take care of them and take care of themselves. So just it's just often we sort of just see the patient in front of us, but don't really understand what their their social context is. And so ha you know, and so we have an understanding. Okay, this patient for whatever reason didn't get their SNAP um, benefits. Then we can say, oh, let's get the social worker involved. Maybe the social worker can help us um, to get the patient connected or get them connected to whatever benefits or entitlements that they have. Um, that they um, are eligible for. So it's just like, it's really this idea of not, not staying at the surface level, but really working to understand, you know, how the social determinants of health impact our patients. And then what are the, I always think of the structural determinants, like these policies, policies these are really underlying the social, the social determinants of health. So I don't know if that was, I'm not sure if that like was response. If that was an accurate response to your question, but um, 
Yeah, it's just understanding. There, it's, so I kind of think about this as a concentric circle. So there's like the individual, then there's the interpersonal interaction with the patient and the provider. Then there's like the clinic, then there's the community, then there's these broader policies. And just thinking about at each level, what we can do. So as an, in, as an individual um, or as an individual um, provider, we can make sure that we are learning about the way that these systems can potentially impact our patients and impact our interaction with our patients. Like we, we know that there are these hierarchies that exist. Our patients may not necessarily feel comfortable telling us everything um, because we, you know, we, we, we're from a different background that they are, they're from, then um, what is it about the at the clinic level? Um, what can be done to support our patients? Some clinics have, for instance, uh, medical legal relationships. So a lot of times our patients may be facing eviction, um, maybe dealing with issues around immigration. So a number of clinics have started to like have relationships with, um, you know, organizations like when I worked in the Bronx, like the Bronx Defenders, like a public, def public defender organization, you know, would have them come in, you know, one day a week to, you know, to so that we could connect our patients around legal issues they were facing. So it's just sort of building out sort of from this individual out, out, out to see, um, you know, the ways in which these different factors, structural factors impact our patients and what we can do at these different levels. So you, you just brought me to my other question that I was that I was that I was going to get to. But how much coordination is there between clinics, hospitals, social services, legal defense, um, access and things like that? Is this something that you see is growing? Is this something that you see needs a ton of work? You know, what's the status of that? Yeah, no, I think that's a good question. I, I do think that there's like increasing awareness um, around, you know, the need to not just address, you know, when patients come in, it's not just, you know, health is, I think, 20% around healthcare access and type the quality of care people receive, but 80% is like, you know, everything else that we've, that we've mentioned. Um, so I think because of the increasing recognition, there are programs, I forgot the name of this one program, the one that does the medical legal partnerships with community health centers and in um, organizations like Bronx Defenders. So I think, think there are more and more of these happening, but it's like, clearly it's like not, it's not enough. And I think it's, it's really piecemeal. Um, I don't think, I have not seen like large healthcare systems, for instance, really, you know, making these connections. Often it's like a small, like federally qualified health center or community health center that, um, you know, is making these um, connections. So they're just to say, there's still like a great deal of work to be done. And I think what I'm discussing is not definitely not the norm um, for for most um, clinics and, and healthcare systems. So do you think that that's about awareness? Is that about money? Is that about uh, policy? Like, w why do you think that there hasn't been, you know, as much of a push? I mean, you say that this this research has been around since the 70s. So what do you think that, that disconnect yeah. might be between health and, and all of the other services that go into a person's health? Yeah, I think that, you know, if, I mean, I, for, I think for many, you know, healthcare, as I mentioned, is for profit um, in this country for the most part. And I think that many healthcare systems would have to like see what the return on the investment would be in creating these, these partnerships. And I, I don't think that they've done, you know, an exercise or modeling to look at this. I mean, I think for many of us, it's just like common sense that if we help people with these other facets, you know, of their life that we know eventually impact health, that 
it will improve health outcomes. But I think for many, I would say folks who are leading healthcare systems, this is just not, it's not on their radar because I think it's not seen as something that is, is profitable um, or will benefit the healthcare system in any way. So often they need to see, you know, you know, a calculation, the money showing like this is how much money you could potentially save by, you know, bringing in, you know, other partners um, to really help address these other issues that patients are often confronting. Oh, I was going to I was going to say, do you think and I guess in your professional opinion, do you think that changing the policy um, like like healthcare and making it for all, making it healthcare free or, you know, for everybody, would that make a significant impact in all of these other factors that affect um, as far as competency goes, do you think that it would make a big impact? There's just still a lot more that would have to be done after that. Yeah, I think, you know, so I think, you know, healthcare for whatever reason in this country is seen as a privilege versus um, a right. And so I think that if all, if everyone had access to comprehensive healthcare, I think that would make a big difference, but that would not be sufficient because we know that, as I was saying, you know, you know, health outcomes only about, you know, it's, I think the estimate is about 20% is driven by access to healthcare and quality healthcare. So it's all those other things that I was talking about, um, you know, in terms of, you know, what communities people are living in. If you're living in a community that's like um, zoned for undesirable land use, you know, even if you do have access to, you know, good healthcare and you're, you're still being exposed to, you know, polluted air, there's not a lot of space for you to exercise. You don't have healthy food. So like all those things are still, if those things are not addressed, um, access to healthcare, to quality healthcare, you know, will be beneficial, but it's not going to be sufficient to begin to like mitigate and eliminate inequities that we see in, in health in this country. We'll be right back. Beep, beep. We are interrupting this show to tell you about our podcast with a very special announcement. Hey folks, I hope you're enjoying your podcast, which you're listening to right now. But I would like to tell you about another one. We are Sounds Like Autism. Produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. Which is full of impactful programming. It's the podcast that celebrates neurodiversity by speaking to the people who are helping to create a more inclusive world. I am Dave Thompson. I am an educator and an innovator and a leader within the space of helping the world become a more inclusive place for neurodivergent people as a neurodivergent self-advocate myself. And my co-host, Josh Mursky, is an incredible, hardworking, big picture dude who is on the autism spectrum and super stoked to spread his message of inclusion along with me. We've had folks on from all over, all walks of life, all over the country, and more. You don't need to be someone who is autistic yourself or have skin in the game. You don't need a family member or a neighbor who is autistic. You probably have one, but you don't need any of that to get stoked on neurodiversity and inclusion. We're confident that if you give us a shot, if you join us on our journey, that you'll be a lifer and you'll be fully invested in this mission. We are just so delighted and honored to have this kind of platform to share with you all what we do check us out i hope you enjoy your current podcast and then after that skedaddle and come right over here to sounds like autism and check us out now back to the show you're listening to discriminology with your hosts malik Silau, steve kramer and sydney pin dr oni are there any other barriers around progressing this conversation i mean you kind of outlined the 
financial pitfalls. Mr. Kramer mentioned critical race theory and things like that. Is it has it been politicized? Yeah. Uh, is that another barrier or is or, I, I guess I'm just trying to ask, is the conversation objective or are there political implications? Um, there's there's some interesting. I mean, it's interesting. Um, like I'm it, your question made me think about. So, you know, there are about 12 states that have not expanded Medicaid. And this is in the middle of a pandemic. They have still not expanded Medicaid. And um, Medicaid expansion would benefit many people, and especially in the South, um, particularly obviously people who have lower incomes, but it would disproportionately benefit, um, for instance, BIPOC people, Black, Indigenous people of color in the South. And it's just interesting that 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 is not something I mean the federal government has said like the Biden administration has said for instance to the governor of Mississippi we will give you the funds for your Medicaid program and they have said no like the the, the state doesn't even have to really put much in like because it's going to be the federal government and they have still said no so these are just some these are it, it's 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 interesting it's interesting I think that um there is a segment of the population that doesn't want to see everyone able to thrive and live to their fullest potential. And there are political forces that are intentionally restricting people from getting benefits that really that all Americans should have access to. That is fascinating. Not surprising, but fascinating. Yeah, it's um, and I think actually the build the Build Back Better Act, um, which I don't think has passed yet. Hopefully it will be passed. But that also has um, some language in it that if passed would um, actually increase also the number of people who have access to affordable health care. Um, and again, you know, there are um, different parties, different folks who don't want to see people from low income backgrounds, um, people, BIPOC people get access to, to health care. And even though in the long run that would benefit everyone, because what ends up happening is when people don't have access to health care, then they end up, you know, foregoing healthcare waiting. And by the time people end up presenting for care, often, you know, whatever they have is quite advanced and ends up being, you know, obviously costly to, to them in an you know, emotional sense and probably also financial sense, but it's also costly to the healthcare system. And then that cost ends up getting passed on actually to, to everyone. Eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, economics is a very, very difficult concept for most people in this country. They don't understand where their money is going and how it's going out and how things are going to affect them in the end. When uh, when everybody's employed and everybody's working, everybody's doing doing well and everybody has access. But when you keep an entire group of people out and you disenfranchise right. an entire group of people, that money's coming back to you. That, or the payment's coming back to you is what I mean. You're right. going to pay for it in the end. And exactly whether it's race, racism, whatever it is, or just sheer stupidity, people don't really want to want to grasp that very complex kind of economic theory, you know? Right. And it's and it's the case with everything. It's like we are we are interconnected. I think this pandemic has shown us just how interconnected we are. um, And and still that that lesson just seems to not have gotten through to um, to many people, fortunately. And then also just to say with healthcare, just, you know, the, this unique aspect for the United States where healthcare um, insurance is tied, you know, so you have employer-based insurance 
you know, that also um, really limits people's mobility to change jobs, to move, to do what they want to do because, you know, many people fear losing um, their health insurance as well. So that's another, you know, unique aspect of healthcare in the United States, um, which is, again, poses challenges for many people. And because of occupational segregation, all has also concentrated certain groups like Black and Latino people in jobs and in job sectors um, where there are few benefits and that have limited to no health insurance too. I know you alluded to it. Can you give our listeners a quick definition on what occupational segregation means? Oh, okay. No, yes, this idea that when certain um, groups, particularly marginalized groups, are concentrated into certain um, job sectors, typically those that are low paying and don't have a great deal of benefits. And this is based on um, policies from over 100 years ago um, over time that have really worked to um, keep certain communities out of certain jobs um, and um, still and, and then obviously we still see job discrimination things like that today um, but that also in the long run also contribute has an impact on on health and, and wealth as well. And I can, I'm happy to send you, there's like a really nice, I think the Brookings Institute, uh, there's a nice report that I can send you all that really charts like the history of, of policies that have, have served to concentrate certain groups in certain um, industries that are low paying. Yeah, we'd, uh, we'd love to take a look at that and we'd post it to our social media pages as well too. A question I wanted to ask you earlier when you were outlining cultural competency and some of the pitfalls as it relates to stereotypes. Uh, equity is another buzzword that's just being thrown around left and right, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware of. It's specific to healthcare, but I think it's specific to a larger question about equity in general. How do you provide equity without rather avoiding stereotyping? Yeah, I, I like to think about equity as this idea of just that, you know, everyone has different needs. And so um, what we do for each patient or each group is going to be different. Like, so equality is like treating everybody the same way, but it's, but that does not recognize that everyone is different. Everyone has different experiences. Some groups are disadvantaged, some groups are advantaged. Um, and so, yeah, I just think it's about, you know, how do we address whatever the unique needs are of this person in front of me? Um, and that may be like someone may need more support in some way. They may need access to different resources or different opportunities. Um, and so at least within um, in healthcare or, you know, if, 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 with a patient sitting in front of you, um, you know, it's that's kind of a bit easy, you know, from patient to patient, like understanding like how patients needs may differ, but also it's about understanding how the different communities that like, if you're part of a community-based health center or hospital, recognizing that you may need to treat people differently. And that doesn't mean that's not a bad thing. It's just a recognition that people are coming from different experiences, different lived experiences, different access to opportunities, different resources, um, et, cetera, et cetera. So what I'm hearing is to, to kind of avoid pigeonholing people into stereotypes. Maybe you have some of these these wider societal understandings, but you continue to have an individual conversation with your patient to see what their specific right. needs are. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Not to right. So not to not to confuse. Right. I'm glad you made that point. Really confuse the listeners. 
you know, who are who might be thinking, well, if we don't if we don't think of everybody as in one group as the same, then how are we supposed to help them? Stereotyping and understanding um, context and background are very different. And right, like Malik said, it's important to understand the general um, context behind maybe a particular group or depending on where where they live or you know what the cultural um, factors might be that you still treat every single person and every single uh, case um, right. differently you take it for a grain of salt and, and analyze what it yeah. is. Yeah and then another part of equity is this idea you know that people um, you know are also involved in like decisions that impact them so you know, if you have a healthcare system that is serving a certain community, it has to be the healthcare system is accountable to that community, and that community should have a role in decisions that the healthcare system makes that impacts them. Um, and so, you know, this idea, right, of accountability, of transparency, of like engaging communities in a meaningful way to get their input into like, you know, how care is provided. What is the experience of, you know, community members when they come into, they walk into this clinic? You know, what do we need to be doing, you know, to make sure that people feel welcomed and comfortable, um, you know, and not just us deciding what that is, but really being informed by community and centering the voices and the needs of the communities that we serve. So that like that's a, a big part of equity as well. So it's like, you know, ensuring that we're meeting people's needs, recognizing people have different needs, um, and that people have different differential access to opportunities and resources, um, and that they should also, you know, play a role in decisions that that impact them. So if I could just uh maybe tie this into the to the current pandemic because um, the whole idea of mandates and vaccines and vaccine accessibility um, there, there's a narrative going that's been going for, for two years that the african-american community is is vaccine hesitant that they there's this mistrust between the african-american community and the government um, Malik has brought up before the Tuskegee experiments and things like that but it seems like it, it seems like after reading the paper and after listening to you, Dr. Blackstone, it's so much more complicated than that. And it almost seems to, you know, <laughs> the good old putting blame on a community rather than understanding what the actual pitfalls are, right? So here you have a community that is getting blamed for something when in, in a, you know, the, the answers are so much more complex. I don't know if I'm making sense, but. Yeah, no, to 100%. And I, I, I agree with the way that you described it. It's a very, it's very simplistic um, sort of description of this idea of people are, are hesitant or worried because of Tuskegee and this blaming that happens of like communities that have been marginalized and terrorized and targeted when really it should be instead of actually focusing on the communities although we want to center communities, it's really up to like institutions to, to, to build, to show themselves to be trustworthy. Like it is not up to, you know, patients and communities that are going to be accessing a health, uh, you know, certain healthcare system for them to be like, okay, it's, it's up to you to trust this healthcare system. When this healthcare system has shown itself to be untrustworthy, it's up to these institutions, hospitals, clinics, community health centers to show community members this is why you can trust us. Um, and and that's like a whole process. I think we're seeing that with um, like some academic medical, uh, academic, uh, academic, uh, like universities, for instance, at colleges, like I think Georgetown has started this whole um, sort of truth and reconciliation process because Georgetown actually, you know, the, the folks who founded it, I think they owned a number of 
enslaved people. Um, and so I think they've now offered, I think, tuition to all the descendants. So they're, just to say that, like, and, and I think Brown is working on, Brown University is doing something um, as well. Um, but just to say, like, this whole idea of, like, you know, truth and reconciliation, like institutions that have done harm, healthcare institutions, like need to engage in really like brave dialogue, really acknowledging the harms that they've committed. Um, but not just that, they also need to like, I think kind of like what Georgetown is trying to do, but also like repair the harm, like figure out what needs to be done so that we've not just apologized and like acknowledged, but what can we do to make sure that we've addressed whatever harms have happened and how do we um, move forward. So I think we'll, you know, for, we'll see more. I think we'll see more and more of this happening. Um, I don't think I've seen any situations where I've been like super impressed by the repair, you know, what's been the reparations that have been provided. But um, I think it's, it's a first step. There, there are so many parallels in what, what you're talking about in your experiences to, to, to my profession in public education and receiving students and this idea of equity and this idea of fairness and treating everybody equally, especially in the last two years with virtual and kids being home and not having access mm -hmm. and trying to explain to colleagues, you know, who are getting mad at these kids who aren't doing their homework. I'm like, well, you know, have you asked them what the situation is in their house? Is there one computer? Does everybody have a computer? Is there Wi-Fi? Are these kids having to run down to the library to use their Wi-Fi? Mm -hmm. You know, everybody has this image of, well, you know, if you're poor, it's just, it's, it's my house. It looks the same. It's just a little smaller, you know, they, they have this right. like bizarre image of what, you know, poverty does and what, what not having access does. And, you know, we're going through this whole thing with us and trying to get bias training, you know, which is obviously on Long Island, nearly impossible to get the ball rolling on this. You know, nobody wants to, nobody wants to tackle these issues, especially, especially in this climate. But um, mm -hmm. do you do you see the same thing with colleagues? Do you see the same thing with, with supervisors? Do you see the same kind of kind of roadblocks that I'm talking about? It just not not really just willingness to admit that some of these obstacles are there. Right. Yeah. So I, I was actually really fortunate to the, the, the program that I trained in. At, it's at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. It's like it's called a primary care social medicine program. And I specifically went there because like we are trained to understand like our patients, like entire social context, because so much of what you're saying is about like people not really you know, understanding what are people's day-to-day -day experiences? What are the barriers that they're facing? And the reality is, is that, you know, there I, I hear all the time, like different vignettes or, um, you know, just stories that people or anecdotes that people share about their interactions, you know, with the healthcare system and people not understanding, you know, what, you know, for like, you know, why someone may not have taken their medication, why that's not a part when people are worried, you know, when people are worried about like where they're going to sleep that night, where their next meal is going to come from, like, taking your medication is not going to be at the top of the list. And so like, what can we do to like help support, you know, our patients with, you know, do, with those things that are important to them, but also things that we, that we know may, may help them and they, they may benefit from. Um, and so a lot of it is like thinking about, is that saying it's not about like, what's the matter with someone, but what like matters to them. So like, it's always about one of my patients, like what it's always like the, the hook is, figuring out what are they worried about? What are they concerned about? And then I may have my own agenda, but it's also like wrapping wrapping that into what, what they are most concerned about, addressing those issues and then being like, oh yes, by the way, what are your thoughts about 
you know, I noticed that your blood pressure is on the higher side. Like what's going, tell me about how things have been going with taking your medication. Seems like, it seems like you might be having, you know, some challenges. Like, do you want to tell me about it? You know? So, um, yes, it's, it's, we need to make sure that, you know, healthcare professionals, you know, or anyone in, engaging with the public, but healthcare professionals in particular, you know, really seek to understand um, the experiences um, of the of patients in the communities they serve and what are the, you know, major factors and major barriers people may be facing to really being able to fully um, engage in, 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 in taking care of themselves. From, from your experience being obviously a part of the health equity conversation, does poverty become synonymous with racism? Or is there, a, is there an acknowledgement that racism is much more pervasive than just not having money? Right. Yeah. So a lot of people are like, oh, no, it's just that people are poor. And, and that's why they're like dealing with these issues. But, you know, for instance, when we look at um, maternal mortality, I think this has been talked about a lot. So black women with college education have worse outcomes than a white woman who's not graduated from high school. Like, so... So sure, like, you know, there is some contribution of, you know, if you do have access to resources, you have access to better health care. But what seems to continue to be a persistent factor in in um, in generating um, inequities are these, you know, large, these larger systems, including including racism. Um, and it's, it's not explained by individual behavior. Um, so, for instance, I'm an HIV, I'm also an HIV doc. And so most, most diagnoses nowadays of HIV are among black men, black men who have sex with men. But when you look at um, the, the data for black men who have sex with men, um, as well as Latino men who have sex with men, they actually have much less, um, they're engaged in much less um, what we call, quote, unquote, I don't say this, but risky behavior. They're, they're less likely to engage in behaviors that may put them at risk for HIV. So you're like, why do they get HIV? Um, you know, as compared to to white men, and it's because um, you know, again, this concentration of, of of poverty in black communities, poor access to care. So, if someone can't go to get HIV tested and know their status, they may unknowingly pass HIV on to someone else. So, we we just see that like. The, you know, poverty interacts with racism, but that racism tends to be like the biggest driving force. So even when we look across different other identities, you know, ability status, gender, um, and it's important to do so so that we have an intersectional lens, but we still see inequities by race in everything, in every system, criminal, legal, education, healthcare. And then when we look across identities, it's this very, um, very potent, potent force that contributes to inequities. So I, I've always, I won't say always, but I've been aware that racism is much more pervasive than poverty, but can never really explain why or how that works. Or I don't even think I understand why that's the case. I just know that's the case. Well, I would say that poverty is a result of, of, ca- of capitalism. Capitalism is a system of power and oppression. And so is racism they're all these are all pervasive they're all pervasive throughout our society um and we take part in them you know we take part in a capitalist system um and so yeah it's hard it's hard to really disentangle sometimes the effects of these things but we know that they can be really synergistic so if someone is you know indigenous and poor they're going to have much worse outcomes than maybe someone who's indigenous and, and wealthy, and then someone who's maybe white and wealthy will have like way better outcomes. 
so they all um, they all have some impact. Um, and then we're, you know there are lots of other systems: ableism, sexism, homophobia. <laughs> these all these all contribute, um, and we see them um, showing up. You know, in terms of impacting people's health. I have one more question, but I wanted to make sure Sid and Kramer, you didn't have anything else. No, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm illuminated. <laughs> you like she's a- <laughs> No, it's, it's just a, what, what a what a great conversation. <laughs> as as am I. No, but I was gonna. I don't know what you were gonna. I don't know what you were gonna get ready to say, Malik. But I, uh, I guess my my last question, the question I had left for Dr. Oni, was about her opinion, your opinion on what um, tangibly, I guess, going forward after listeners dissected this conversation, what tangibly going forward can we be more aware of or look out for in terms of you know seeking healthcare, or, you know, looking at healthcare from a different, different lens. Um, but you can say what you're going to say first, Malik, and then. My question was probably more apt for earlier uh, when we were talking about geographical determinants of health and neighborhood effects. Dr. Oni, have you ever heard of grocery scripts or food prescriptions, like actually giving prescriptions for patients to go to the grocery store and, and get a well-balanced diet? Yes. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard of that. Yes. I mean, I've, I've heard of it like in, you know, in the sense of sort of it being symbolic, um, but whether it's accepted, I'm not sure, is it, is it actually accepted by the supermarket? Well, I was asking you if it was like a tangible thing. I kind of heard of it in passing. Yeah, you know, we actually here in New York, wait, we're in New York City, but here in New York City, the health department, I remember we did have this whole initiative with, um, you know, as healthcare providers, we could give out um, these sort of coupons or food dollars that people could use at the different green markets um, throughout the city. So that's something that um, that we, I think, that that models or something like that does exist, although it doesn't use prescriptions. It uses um, sort of coupons, but really as in the role of the healthcare provider, really highlighting to you know our patients um, and the communities we serve the ways in which you know we know that food is so much linked to and access to healthy food is is linked to our overall health and well-being um so right that's, yeah. so it doesn't sound like it's a widely scalable thing no it may be it, it, it totally may be like i know that we you know sometimes you know as providers you know we'll write a prescription you know make sure you take 30 minutes each day to relax you know what i mean like just to just to because a right. lot of times we're so you know this the healthcare system is very focused on like throwing pills at people you know, here's for your blood pressure. This is, you know, it's like a pill for everything. Um, and so, you know, in order to like elevate like the other counseling that we do with patients, because a lot of times that's not really recognized, um, especially when it comes to like billing and stuff like that. Uh, we, you know, may also just be like, you know, this is like, it seems like, you know, or make sure to do some physical activity for 30 minutes a day. Like we, right. I have done this and I've had other colleagues do this. And it, and it may be something more widespread in terms of what you were asking around being able to take a prescription to get food. Like I would imagine maybe if there was a clinic that was working in collaboration with, you know, a bodega or a nearby, um, you know, green market or whatever, that they could maybe set up something like that for their patients. And, and, and something like that may very well exist. Yeah, it, it definitely sounds like it, it could work if it was scaled up to any significant level. Um, Sid, I thought your question was super pertinent. Um, if I heard it correctly, it was, what does all this information that we discussed today mean to people like us who are not healthcare providers? And what can we do to kind of contribute to this? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I think like just um, 
understanding, you know, what are the, all the different factors that contribute to our own health and the health of our communities is important. I think a lot of times we it's limited to just, you know, accessing, you know, going to the doctor and taking your medications, but just recognizing that there are, there's so many parts of, you know, our day-to-day experience that contribute, you know, our ability to be able to like walk, you know, to the subway station safely, you know, is something that, you know, can may impact our health. Um, you know, being able to get healthy foods, things of that nature. So just raising awareness and then also really thinking about, you know, are you familiar with what are the, the policies that might make some of the, these things easier or harder um, for people to be able to do? So if we have, you know, if there's a policy of like, maybe stop and frisk, someone may not feel comfortable then like going for run- running in their neighborhood as exercise. Um, so this may personally impact us, but even if it doesn't personally impact us, it may impact people that we care about, people that we work with, people that we're friends with. So just realizing just how like, just I guess interconnected so many of these things are. And then, um, yeah, just having just, you know, also whatever education folks can do to understand, you know, how we didn't talk so much about this, but you know, how some of these larger systems, how the ways in which poverty, racism, how those also contribute to, you know, what we are seeing, including with the COVID-19 pandemic, um, especially in terms of, in terms of inequities. And if people are interested, you know, finding, you know, there are many different advocacy groups, um, some that are just focused on healthcare providers, but many, you don't have to be a healthcare provider, but we, there are many groups of people who are organizing, who care about issues and care about making the world um, a much safer place and healthier place for everyone. Um, And so people can always get involved. Um, in terms of like organizing or showing up at actions or protests or whatever it is, or it could even be writing letters to your elected officials. There's so many ways that we can contribute to advancing our society towards one where everyone is being cared for. Yeah. And to quote Mr. Kramer, I am also illuminated. So this is, this is great. Okay. Good. I'm, yeah, hopefully, yeah, I know it's probably a lot of information and I do tend to speak quickly, but hopefully it, you can uh, d- have time to digest it. Oh, this was, this is amazing, for sure. Oh, no, it was, it was fantastic. Um, for our listeners, be sure to follow Dr. Oni on Twitter. I don't know your handle off the top, so I don't know if you want to relay that. Sure, it's at Oni underscore Blackstock. You tweet about these type of conversations all the time, and I get a lot of education in game just by following on Twitter. So I wanted to make sure I listened to that I was going to do that too. Uh, but really appreciate you coming back onto the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to speak with all of you. Of course. Thanks again. Great to see you again. Thanks for tuning into the show. Discriminology is brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios, executive produced by George Andriopoulos. Our theme song, Wild Ones, is licensed through Twano Beats LLC. Other music and sound effects licensed through Epidemic Sound. Discriminology is hosted with Podbean. Make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. Follow us at discriminology underscore podcast on Instagram, at discriminology3 on Facebook and Twitter. Make sure to follow all the great podcasts produced by Launchpad 516 Studios.